day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Today, we are continuing our 2021 WDET book club discussions about the U.S. Constitution and the ways in which it has shaped and still guides our lives in our nation today. This time, I'm digging into the Constitution as it relates to marriage equality. Now, marriage is kind of a funny thing when it comes to the Constitution. That's because much of the Constitution is about Americans' interaction with government and public institutions. But when it comes to marriage, almost from the very beginning, the Constitution has had a lot to do with the way Americans make the most sacred private choices. The Constitution influences that sphere of our private lives. And just like in the interactions with government and public institutions, the history of the Constitution's influence over these private spaces is pretty rife with inequality. Today, I want to talk about how that interaction has changed in recent decades and why the history around this constitutional issue of marriage still matters, in some ways more than ever. Here to talk with me about this topic are two people who have spent a lot of time thinking about it. Paul M. Smith is a professor of practice at Georgetown Law. He's vice president for litigation and strategy at the Campaign Legal Center. And among his important victories is in a case called Lawrence v. Texas, which was the landmark uh, gay rights case heard at the Supreme Court in 2003. Professor Smith also argued a long list of voting rights cases in the Supreme Court. Uh, Professor Smith, welcome to Detroit Today. It's glad to be here. Also with us is Jake Kaplan, who is the LGBT Rights Project staff attorney right here at the ACLU of Michigan. Jay, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Good to be here. So I want to start here. Uh, I want to ask you both broadly about why marriage, which, as I framed it in the open, is a really personal choice, maybe the most personal choice that all of us make about whom we want to spend our lives with. And uh, there, I think there's a basic question about why that is even subject to any government regulation at all. Why is government allowed, according to the U.S. Constitution even, to interfere in that kind of private American space? Professor Smith, I'll start with you. But you, you put it well, Stephen, it is, in fact, it, among the most important and personal decisions that people make, who they want to form a family with, who they want to live their lives with. On the other hand, it, the government has been involved in uh, giving people, making people married since the beginning of the republic. Uh, and so uh, that is one of our, our key traditions. And I think the idea is that they want it to be a legal institution as well as a, a personal or religious institution uh, for the protection of, of children, for regularizing the way property is handled and lots of other things. And so the government has had the opportunity over, over the years to say who it will marry and who it won't. Fortunately, now we've gotten to the point where many of the types of discrimination that used to exist uh, no longer exist. So interracial couples can get married, same-sex couples can get married. So the ability of people to, to make their own choices about the kind of family they want to have is, is much greater now than it used to be. Mm. Uh, Jay, I, I wonder if you can talk about 
the reasons that uh, this is government's business at all and uh, over time how I guess we've come to think very differently about government's ability uh, to make those decisions. Yeah, I think just as, as Professor was saying, the government felt that there was an interest not only, you know, in terms of uh, of uh, deciding in, uh, how this impacts children and family relationships, but also how does the law handle consequences as a result of marriage if somebody dies or if, if the parties decide to, to get divorced and, and believing that there's some role you know, to play uh, in the institution of marriage. Uh, and of course, what we have seen, particularly, you know, with regards to uh, interracial marriage bans, as well as same-sex marriage bans, you know, the, the court's taking a very close look at the reasons that were being proffered by the government for disallowing, you know, certain people to be able to get married to each other and finding that that didn't satisfy a constitutional basis to, to deny access to to that legal institution. Yeah. Uh, Professor Smith, when we look at how rules around unwarranted governmental discrimination have been extended over time, can you take us back to the 1960s? to talk about how specific parts of the Constitution were used and amended to address racial discrimination. Well, the the key provision of the Constitution, do a little bit of uh, law teaching here that relates to discrimination, is the 14th Amendment, which was passed and ratified back in the 1860s after the Civil War and uh, was designed to be the primary uh, guarantor of equality for the newly uh, freed, formerly enslaved African-American population of the country. Uh, it, it contains what's called the Equal Protection Clause, that you can't be denied the equal protection of the law, and other guarantees of liberty that have been important through our history as well. Uh, but boy, back in the 50s and 60s, you know, the Equal Protection Clause was the basis for uh, the desegregation of the public schools and Brown versus Board of Education and a great many other advances in terms of eliminating uh, uh, discrimination on the basis of race. And that is certainly a core function of the Constitution to this day, uh, supplemented as it was in the 1960s by important legislation passed by Congress, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, then the Constitution has over time been extended to other forms of discrimination as well, discrimination against women in the 1970s. That was the great achievement of Justice Ginsburg when she was still a lawyer at the ACLU uh, to, to persuade the courts to view discrimination by the government against people uh, on the basis of their gender to be almost as serious a form of discrimination as racial discrimination, just to take another example. Mm. Uh, and when we look at the 1970s, Professor Smith, uh, yeah. talk about uh, Ruth Gader Ginsburg, uh, uh, the late Supreme Court justice, and the work that she did in addressing gender discrimination and how that figures into the discussions about marriage and marriage equality. Right. Until the 1970s, uh, the idea that the Constitution would, would really have much to say about governmental discrimination based on sex was was was, uh, was a novel and new idea that hadn't the courts hadn't gone there yet but justice ginsburg got into her mind the idea that there's lots of forms of discrimination in the law that involve uh, sex discrimination that ought to be equally unconstitutional because they have uh, very um, deleterious effects on people they're based on stereotypes they, they don't serve any legitimate purpose 
and so she she filed a series of cases uh, uh, challenging provisions of federal and state law that said treated men and women differently. Uh, and one of her great insights was to file uh, on behalf of men first, uh, uh, so that she wouldn't uh, lose the sympathy of the almost entirely male judiciary she was trying to appeal to back in the 19. Uh, uh, 70s. And uh, she, after several decisions in the Supreme Court, she she won the court's recognition that sex discrimination by the government requires what's called heightened scrutiny, the special careful scrutiny that, that, that means that it's presumptively unconstitutional. There might be occasions when uh, things are okay, uh, you know, separate bathrooms based on gender and the like. But for example, she, uh, her, she uh, later on as a justice, she wrote the, the major opinion of the Supreme Court saying it was unconstitutional for Virginia to operate a military academy, the VMI, and admit only men. Uh, and so that was an application of this heightened scrutiny that she had helped establish when she was still a lawyer. Hmm. Uh, Jay, I wonder if you can talk about the ties between the legal arguments made on the basis of race that have shown up in arguments made up on the basis of uh, the rights of same-sex couples. This line, I think, that you can draw from the debates of the 1960s to the cases that we start to see in the 2000s, uh, and then ultimately, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that right. says you cannot deny uh, the right to marry on the basis of someone's sexual orientation. Yeah, I think we can also even see the ties from the 70s with the sex discrimination uh, cases, as well as how they benefited in terms of the, the cause for LGBT rights. And so, you know, one of the first Supreme Court cases was in 1986 on LGBT rights, and it, it dealt with uh, Georgia's sodomy law that criminalized same-sex sodomy. And the court it defined the issue as whether or not gay people have a fundamental right to engage in sodomy. Uh, and in other words, the court was only looking at gay people in terms of presumed sexual behavior. And then the court evolved, and they started applying equal protection. Uh, and the, the case in Miller versus Evans in 1996, where it was a law that Colorado prohibited any civil rights laws protections for LGBT people. And the court said, when you pass laws and policies that are motivated by an animus towards a particular group or the desire to do harm to that particular group, that doesn't even meet the lowest level of constitutional scrutiny, rational basis. And um, over time, the court, through some of the cases and through the marriage cases, began to recognize LGBT people, not in terms of presumed sexual behavior, but as human beings and their relationships and to families. And we've evolved to the decision last year with Bostock versus Clayton County, mm -hmm. where the Supreme Court said discrimination against LGBT people and employment is sex discrimination based on those same gender stereotypes that Justice Ginsburg raised as a, as a fledging uh, civil rights attorney at that time with the ACLU. Uh, and so now uh, LGBT people can challenge discriminatory policies and practices using heightened scrutiny. So I think all of that kind of came into effect that, that resulted, you know, several years ago in the marriage equality decision, the court finding that the right to marry and the benefits of marriage are a fundamental right, and that to deny that to same-sex couples is unconstitutional. Mm. And, of course, Jay, the Supreme Court decision involved 
a case and a couple from right here in Michigan, April DeBoer and Jane Rouse. Can you talk about their story and how the Supreme Court viewed this case uh, in relation to this big question of, of, of same-sex marriage? Sure, sure. Well, I think even the, 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 the decision on the Defense of Marriage Act, the Windsor versus the United States, uh, two years previously, the court was recognizing the, the dignity of LGBT families. And when you look at the story of Rachel, you know, of, of Jane and, and uh, her wife and their commitment towards, you know, fostering and adopting children with special needs and the love that they brought to their home, one of the arguments that was always used against the right for same-sex couples to marry was that uh, children do best when they're raised in a home with uh, parents of the, uh, of the opposite sex heterosexual and heterosexual parents. And that was, that was debunked by actual factual evidence and information from, from you know, child welfare experts demonstrating children do best when they're raised in a, in a, in a stable home with, uh, per, you know, whoever's serving the parental role, they're in stable relationships. It, has, it doesn't have anything to do with the sexual orientation of the parents. So I think at the time, you know, the court was ready to make the marriage equality decision. They, they, they were cognizant of these family stories, including the divorce family, and they, they recognized that those, that those kinds of stereotypes or those assumptions regarding same-sex families were not true. And they also recognized the harm that can be done to children of these relationships when you don't afford their parents the, the, the legal stability that is provided in marriage. Mm. Uh- I'm talking with Paul M. Smith, who's a professor of practice at uh, Georgetown Law. He's vice president for litigation and strategy at the Campaign Legal Center. Uh, among his most important victories was in a case called Lawrence v. Texas, which was a landmark gay rights case decided by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in 2003. Professor Smith also argued a really long list of voting rights cases in the Supreme Court. Uh, we've also got Jay Kaplan with us. He's the LGBT rights project staff attorney at the ACLU of Michigan. Uh, today's subject is uh, marriage equality and marriage equality as it is influenced by and has been shaped by the U.S. Constitution and our laws uh, since our founding. We're doing this as part of our 2021 WDET book club discussion, which is exploring uh, many different ways that the U.S. Constitution uh, influences our notions of equality and inequality uh, in 2021. Um, uh, Professor Smith, I want to go back and talk a little more about Lawrence v. Texas. Um, And and first of all, note that uh, uh, I was also at the court uh, when that when that uh, case was heard, I was the Supreme Court correspondent for Knight Ritter newspapers back then. And uh, I, I remember very clearly uh, the day that that case was argued. And even more vividly, I would say, uh, the day that uh, that decision came down and uh, the dissent that uh, Justice Antonin Scalia read from the bench uh, uh, at that time. Um, I, I think it was hard to to forecast, at least for me at that point, how quickly things were about to change in a constitutional sense uh, as a result of that case. Uh, it's, it's only about, uh, you know, it's only about a decade uh, after that, that that we get a, a Supreme Court decision that, that says you can't discriminate on the basis of, uh, of gender or 
sexual orientation with regard to marriage. But but take us back to that time for you, arguing that case and then winning that case. And I guess what you expected to have happen or, or, or how quickly things would happen uh, after that point. Well, uh, the issue, Lawrence, as you, as you mentioned, was the sodomy laws, which were laws that would say you as an adult consensually engaging in sexual uh, activity with another consenting adult in your private home could be put in jail uh, if, the, if the two people involved were the same sex. Uh, and the, as Jay mentioned, those laws were upheld back in the 1980s in the Bowers case. And that became a central focus of what the gay rights movement needed to get rid of, because it basically meant that the Supreme Court was on record that saying there's almost nothing the government could do to you as a gay couple that's unconstitutional. The Constitution really doesn't uh, speak to your rights. You don't have any any rights. Uh, and so after 17 years, we finally got the opportunity to go back to the court in the Lawrence case. Two men had been arrested in a private home, accused of having sex with each other. And by then, as, as Jay suggested, the court had evolved quite a bit. The country had evolved quite a bit. Uh, and so we were very hopeful at the time that we could get Bowers overruled, um, that we could get rid of these odious sodomy laws once and for all, because they were a great instrument of oppression. They meant if you came out publicly as a gay couple, you were uh, uh, announcing that you were a felon in the states that had these laws. Mm -hmm. You could lose custody of your children. You could lose your job as a public employee. Uh, they were terrible. Uh, uh, more, but then what happens is we win Lawrence, uh, and as you'll recall, Stephen, I'm glad that you were there, uh, Justice Kennedy wrote it, the opinion in a way that established the foundation yeah. for marriage equality. He said uh, same-sex relationships are just as valuable and important to gay and lesbian people as uh, the relationships are of heterosexuals. They, they serve the same important function in their lives, and the government in our country does not get to have a point of view about who you pick as your life partner or as your sexual partner for that matter, that these are decisions uh, that are uh, up to the individual uh, and the constitution protects your right to make a choice of who you want to form a life with, even a good, even a bad choice. It's up to you. Uh, and so they situated that, that right along with the right to use birth control and the right to have some the right to access to abortion and this kind of liberty idea that the Constitution protects. And as even Justice Scalia pointed out in that otherwise very vituperative uh, dissenting opinion in, in 2003, once you make those moves, you say gay relationships are equally valuable and the government doesn't get to have a moral point of view, then the pathway to marriage equality is is there. Mm -hmm. The government no longer has any real reason not to give you, you as a as a same sex couple the same recognition and protection uh, as everyone else. And it took twelve years. It didn't seem so fast to those of us who were working to get there, mm. but it did. We did get there. Uh, and so it, it it is an interesting thing to see the connection between the sodomy case back in '03. And the Obergefell case, the, the marriage case in 15, there is a direct linkage there. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about marriage equality and the ways in which uh, the U.S. Constitution shapes and regulates that sense of equality that we have. Uh, we're going to want to hear from you as well. Give us a call and tell us what you think 
about uh, the Constitution and its guarantees of equal rights for people based on sex, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Do you think there are changes that still need to be made uh, to make things more equal for Americans? Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter put comments there and we'll work you into the conversation we'll be right back with more detroit today bringing you news that matters stories that impact your life music from the motor city and around the world this is 1019 wdet Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. We are having more of our 2021 WDET book club discussions today about the U.S. Constitution and the ways that it has framed and shaped our ideas of equality and uh, inequality um, in uh, in our lives as Americans. Uh, I've got two great guests here for the conversation. Paul M. Smith is a professor of practice at Georgetown Law and vice president for litigation and strategy at the Campaign Legal Center. He is uh, one of the attorneys who argued the case, uh, Lawrence v. Texas, uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court in 2003, a landmark uh, gay rights case that paved the way to the idea of uh, gay marriage uh, being uh, being protected uh, by the U.S. Constitution. Also with us is Jay Kaplan. Uh, he is the LGBT Rights Project staff attorney at the ACLU of Michigan. We want to hear from you. Uh, as well, give us a call and let us know how you think we're doing as a nation on the count of uh, equality for people based on sex or sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, if you think we still have a ways to go, call and tell us what you think needs to change to guarantee the protection uh, of those people alongside all other uh, Americans. Uh, also, give us a call and tell us what memories you have of the big debate that we had for years about the idea of same-sex marriage being legal across the United States. It's really, I think, something to sit back and think how quickly that debate changed, pivoted uh, toward the idea of a pretty conservative uh, U.S. Supreme Court saying, yeah, uh, this is something that should be protected just like all other marriages. Uh, also, give us a call and let us think. Let us know what you think about the progress that we've made as a nation in our attitudes toward the LGBTQ community, and of course, how we view marriage. Uh, the number here on the phones is always three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Let's go to Jared in Manchester. Jared, welcome to the program. Hello. Hey, thank you, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would be really curious to hear your guest's comment on, um, first of all, the concept of, of marriage itself as a, a contract between people. 
uh, at its fundamental core. Um, and then what that might mean for multi-member marriages or polyamory from a legal standpoint moving into the future. And if they see this as, I guess, the next logical step in uh, the ba- long-term battle for marriage equality for everyone. Hmm. Uh, Jared, that's a really wonderful and uh, provocative question. Uh, before I turn it over to you, Paul and Jay, I'll, I'll note that this is one of the things that critics of the idea of gay marriage being protected by the U.S. Constitution sometimes have, have trotted out as sort of the parade of horribles, right? Uh, if you allow uh, gay people to enter into, into marriage the same way as everyone else, where, where does it stop? Uh, could, you, could you essentially destroy the institution of marriage uh, by by opening the boundaries that government has set for it uh, in such a dramatic way. Now, I, I also want to note that's not what I think Jared is is hinting at. I think he's asking a a, a well meaning and and intentionally uh, sort of uh, inquisitive uh, question. Um, uh, but but it, it is these are arguments that we sometimes hear from people who are saying this goes too far and it veers too wildly from our original notions of what marriage is or is not, and especially in the sense, as Jared points up, uh, in the sense of marriage being uh, a contract. Uh, Professor Smith, I will start with you uh, responding to Jared. Uh, Thanks for the question, Jared. As you point out, Stephen, the the idea that um, giving gay people rights, gay and lesbian people rights, is going to lead to a a parade of horribles was always with us. It was there back in Lawrence. It was certainly there in all the marriage cases. If we give you this much, then where's the the stopping point? People are going to marry their pets, was said, that sort of thing. Um, And, um, you know, the idea that it would be hard to draw a line between um, same-sex couples getting married and uh, more than two people getting married was always out there as part of that of that argument. Uh, and uh, we were able to overcome that. Uh, and now what we are actually starting to see is just the first um, glimmerings of people who say that they're in the, the, the polyamory movement, who believe, in fact, that there ought to be the opportunity to form relationships involving more than two people, uh, and that they should be legal recognition for them. And, uh, you know, in, in some ways, I think they have a pretty good legal argument uh, that uh, may in the future, I think we're some years away from the courts being open to this, but I think it's, it, it, is, it is something that people are starting to talk about. And to say as, uh, you know, why should you be, shouldn't you, why say that, that opportunity to form your own life the way you want to is off limits uh, from legal protection uh, where the people who just want to have a, a single spouse, they get all the protections. Why should that be the rule? Why would we want to draw that line? And so uh, I wouldn't be at all shocked to see in the in the future someday that, that there are, in fact, multiple marriages and that, that people have the opportunity to form whatever kind of family they want. And the, and the government has the obligation to uh, protect and support that. Mm. And and uh, Professor Smith, in some ways, that gets back to that fundamental question that I asked in the open for the show, which is why why should the government be able to regulate this space for Americans? It is ultimately a private choice, but but then the answer sometimes uh, is well, this is a contract, and as Jared points out, uh, 
uh, marriage is seen from a legal standpoint uh, as as an agreement. How does how does that figure into what you're saying uh, about where we might be headed with marriage? Well, as as we discussed a little earlier, there are all sorts of sort of practical reasons why the government thinks it needs to be involved in in um, allowing a, a legal blessing to be put on a, on a marriage, mm-hmm. especially the, the issue of children and, and custody later on, uh, property division and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, one of the things you're going to start uh, hearing as we, if, if there ever is a movement, a serious movement toward uh, the, ar- the argument that there, the people ought to, more than two people ought to be able to get married is that those kinds of concerns are just going to get more and more uh, messy. Uh, and so far from an argument against government being involved, they're, they're, the argument will be the government ought to say, we really aren't going to give you legal recognition uh, for this because it's just too complicated. The, the custody issues, the t- children not knowing who their the most important parents are, property issues and, and the like. So I actually don't foresee a time when uh, the government will get out of the marriage business uh, because of those practical considerations and because we have 200 and some years of tradition uh, of doing it that way. Although some certainly throughout the, the movement towards same-sex marriage uh, thought the right answer would be for the government not to marry anybody uh, and let people just do whatever they want as a matter of contract. Hmm. We shall see. Yeah. Uh, Jay Kaplan, I'm also reminded uh, by by Jared's question of I guess, again, the similarities uh, between the arguments against same-sex marriage, for instance, and the argument against uh, interracial marriage or mm-hmm. other, uh, other fronts of racial equality. We have always heard people say, if you do this, mm-hmm. what will follow will, will, will be awful and, and you know, indefensible, and it will destroy... Uh, this institution, of, of course, uh, when the Civil War amendments were being uh, de- debated, uh, the, the, the argument was that uh, liberating black people in in the way that those amendments did would lead to uh, all kinds of unacceptable equality, I guess. Um, and, and it's it's sometimes painful, I guess, to to be reminded uh, that there is there is a powerful there is a powerful bigotry that uh, that that lurks just behind uh, those kinds of arguments, and that's what same-sex couples faced for 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 many many years. Oh, absolutely! I think anytime you find a resistance to civil rights for other people, it's these arguments about tradition. You know, we want to keep things the way the status quo is. Yeah, we, we, regardless of the impact, the inequality, and the collateral damage that that does. Uh, you know, to, to marginalize groups. And, you know, as Professor mentioned, it wasn't even just the talk about polyamory or you know, polyamorous relationships. Is what's this going to stop, you know, a person from marrying their, their pet? Uh, you know, some, some of these ridiculous arguments. Um, and, uh, you know, the argument about marriage equality and the argument about interracial marriage was an argument about two people who wish to, to you know, to, to have access to the legal institution of marriage. Um, but, you know, of course, somewhere down the line, there will be an argument on behalf of, of, of a couple of, 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 you know, a relationship that involves more than just two people. And I, I think, though, that also, you know, was, was key to the, to the success of, of marriage equality for same-sex couples was the recognition that many 
LGBT people were in relationships mm-hmm. and did have families and and the lack of you know access to this institution actually caused harm to these families and harm to their children and uh, you know there was an established record and I think the issue in terms of more than one you know more than two individuals getting married I think over you know in terms of a record of the stories and identifying those families I think that you know that that that, that still will will take time. So, so Jay, I also want to have you talk about the next frontier in uh, in uh, sexual orientation um, equality and gender equality. Um, you and I have talked about this before on on the show that uh, the marriage decision from the Supreme Court was, you know, uh, absolutely a milestone and moved us way forward. But that there are several other things that uh, uh, several other forms of discrimination uh, that LGBTQ um, Americans face um, that, that, that still need debate and ultimately uh, need to, to fall. And here in Michigan, we are still involved in a, a pretty robust dis- discussion and debate and, and really a fight about uh, how anti-discrimination law will, uh, will apply to uh, all of our citizens. Uh, can you talk a little about Elliot Larson and where we are with uh, Sure, sure. Yeah, go ahead. So, um we 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 our Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act doesn't explicitly mention the categories of sexual orientation and gender identity and so for more than um, 30 years there's been the attempt to to amend our civil rights laws to to add those specific categories, and it certainly is met with resistance from the uh, from the current leadership uh, in the Michigan legislature, and you know, the argument that somehow there should be broad religious exemptions not only for religious institutions but for individuals to be exempt from having to comply with not discriminating against LGBT people because of their religious beliefs. And, um, you know, that, that's been the current resistance. And, you know, we're seeing that. We're seeing challenges before the United States Supreme Court, just the recent decision in Fulton versus Philadelphia, where a faith-based uh, foster care agency that gets government money to provide foster care services says that they won't work with same-sex couples because of their religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. And it was a very narrow decision before the United States Supreme Court. But, you know, eventually... There, we believe there are justices on the U.S. Supreme Court that are open to the idea that you provide this broad religious exemption for what's essentially non-religious activity, uh, you know, based on a person's religion when when it pertains to LGBT rights, and that's very very concerning to us. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I think the other area that we we have concerns about is. It's kind of as a result of a backlash to the marriage equality, our attacks on the transgender community. We've seen just in the past year more than two dozen legislatures uh, uh, passing legislation or introducing legislation that would prohibit transgender students from being able to play sports in accordance with their gender identity, mm-hmm. legislation that would uh, prohibit medical providers from, from providing affirming medical treatment to transgender youth, and recently a law in Tennessee that would require businesses to have to post a sign outside bathrooms to let people know that transgender people might be in these bathrooms. Now, some of these laws are being challenged in in the federal court, 
and courts are finding them to be unconstitutional. But there seems to be this uh, this coordinated effort in a lot of the different state legislatures, including in Michigan, mm-hmm. to to you know to launch an attack on probably the most vulnerable uh, uh, population of the LGBT community that being of transgender youth. So those these two things uh, play hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about marriage equality and the U.S. Constitution. We also want to continue to hear from you. What do you think about the state of marriage equality uh, as it applies on the basis of sex or sexual orientation or gender identity? Is there still more work to do? Uh, what work would you like to see us doing as a nation to move further toward equality? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We are having a discussion about marriage equality in the U.S. Constitution as part of our 2021 WDET book club discussions about the U.S. Constitution and equality. And I want to tell you about a really cool dimension of the book club this year. Um, We are sending out pocket-sized constitutions and postcards where we welcome your voice. And some of you have already written us back with the changes that you'd like to see in the Constitution. And here are just a couple of the comments we've gotten so far. Uh, Especially relevant for today, uh, Mary says, add the equal rights for women, LGBT, and every person, not just citizen in the United States. In other words, I think uh, Mary would like to see a uh, constitutional amendment that mentions uh, those classes of people uh, and the protections that they ought to have. Um, uh, Merritt and Daniel Taylor say uh, it should be written in the vernacular, not legalese. Uh, somebody who wants the Constitution to be a little more accessible to ordinary citizens. Um, and Marjorie Cohen says eliminate references to men in favor of people. No more sexism. Uh, If you'd like to send us a postcard with the things that you might want to change in the U.S. Constitution, uh, it's easy to do that. All you have to do is go to wdet.org slash constitution. We'll also be popping up at events across the city to have people submit their own. So keep an eye out for the WDET sign. And also remember that you can participate in the book club all the time at uh, our WDET book club page on uh, Facebook. Uh, There are about 900 people right now who are uh, members of that group. There's always a pretty interesting discussion going on there. Okay, right now my guests are Paul M. Smith, who's a professor of practice at Georgetown Law and vice president for litigation and strategy at the Campaign Legal Center. Also with us is Jay Kaplan, the LGBT rights project staff attorney right here at the ACLU of Michigan. And we're talking about marriage equality and the U.S. Constitution. We want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Uh, Give us a call and tell us what you think about 
how the Constitution guarantees equal rights for people based on sex and sexual orientation or gender identity. And give us a, a call and let us know if you think we still need changes to the Constitution or our laws uh, to make sure that those protections are upheld. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll try to include you in the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Professor Smith, I, I, I want to pick up a little bit where we left off before the break when uh, Jay Kaplan was talking uh, about the fight here locally in, in Michigan to expand protections uh, for LGBTQ citizens. Um, and I want to go back again to Lawrence v. Texas, the case that uh, you argued at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in which Justice Scalia was was uh, really undone, I think, in, in the dissent that, that he wrote. But one of the things he, he, he said in that dissent, which I, I, was, I, I can remember being really shaken by at the time, but, but that I've come to think of, I think, a little differently, was he said that if, uh, if gay Americans wanted to secure more, uh, more protection uh, under the law, that they ought to have to do it by convincing their fellow citizens uh, that they were deserving of, of, of those protections. And I can remember thinking that that, that was a very... Um, bizarre and uh, retrograde, perhaps, way of thinking of, of rights and the way that we protect rights. But what's happened over the last 18 years, uh, I think, also reflects how possible that kind of work is. And I'm, you know, I, I want to quickly say I don't think that's the way uh, we ought to determine what people's rights are. But the, the fast pace at which I think Americans have really been willing to reconsider uh, the rights of, uh, of the LGBTQ community, reconsider the idea of uh, what discrimination is and looks like, uh, has really been re remarkable over that time. And in that way, um, I mean, there's so much about that dissent that I thought was kind of prescient um, and even unintentionally so. Uh, but, but here, I, I think what he was saying is actually happening and happening faster than I would ever have imagined it. Well, that's right. I mean, it, it is striking how public opinion on the issue of LGBT equality has, has changed and marriage equality in particular. If we go back to the period of around the time of that Lawrence dissent to 2003, large majority of Americans opposed uh, allowing same-sex couples to marry. And many of them were extremely resentful with the idea that their marriages would be compared to the relationships of those people. Uh, and starting about that time, public opinion began a steady uh, change to the point now where support marriage for 65, 70 percent uh, and continuing to grow. Uh, and so it really is a remarkable change in our political uh, culture that does make it possible now to uh, uh, use the legislative branches, state and federal, to provide protection in ways that 
back in 2003, Scalia must have known we're not really likely to happen, was not really likely to happen in most places, leaving aside, as you said, the idea that people's constitutional rights should all be put to a vote of the majority. That's not the way the Constitution uh, works. Uh, I would th- though note, as, as Jay mentioned in the earlier part, there, there's a kind of a split now between the strong, almost universal public support for equality for uh, gay and lesbian Americans, bisexual Americans, but the, the, the ability of people to continue to pick on the transgender population is, mm. really, is really striking. And these laws that are being passed, the, the, the ban for the military that President Trump put in, uh, suggests that we have a, a long ways to go to build further understanding of uh, what it is to be born a transgender person uh, or an, even a non-binary person uh, and how how cruel it is not to accept the, the, the gender identity that somebody is born with just, just because of, of the, uh, the biology of their bodies at the time they were born. Uh, and I think that is a, an ongoing process, which is going to take another few years to get to the point where pe- people will stop using them as kind of the whipping boy of, uh, of opposition and you know, almost in retaliation for uh, the marriage uh, decision in 2015. Mm. Uh, Jay, as someone who's working uh, in the, litigation, the space of litigation in this area, uh, are you seeing the needle move as it relates to transgender uh, protections uh, the way that it has for uh, for LG, LGB uh, uh, citizens? Well, it's, it's definitely been slower, but we're certainly seeing increased visibility of the transgender community. We have some incredible leaders from the transgender community involved with LGBT rights. And we've been fortunate uh, in our state just recently. Now, this is through the, through the current administration. Um, but uh, we uh, recently, the attorney general struck down a provision in Michigan's birth certificate statute that required transgender people to have to undergo surgery in order to get a corrected birth certificate. The AG struck that down as unconstitutional. So that's going to increase access uh, for trans people born in Michigan to get an accurate birth certificate. Uh, Michigan Medicaid has proposed a new policy requiring insurance companies to have to follow the recommendations of experts in transgender health care so they can't arbitrarily deny coverage for medically necessary trans-related health procedures. And our Michigan Supreme Court is going to be hearing a case called Rouch World versus Michigan Department of Civil Rights, mm-hmm. where, they, well, where they will be deciding, does Michigan's current civil rights laws that prohibit sex discrimination, does that mean that that protects LGBT people from discrimination? So that's some progress that we are making along the way. In addition, our Secretary of State's office changed their policy regarding getting a, a, a gender marker change on a driver's license or state ID, relying on self-attestation instead of requiring transgender people to go through onerous different hoops in order to have accurate identity documents. So um, it depends, you know, elections can have positive consequences. Certainly the Biden administration has, has spoken out and has issued a number of executive orders that are very positive uh, for transgender rights. But it, it really depends on you know, who's in office and, uh, you know, the difference between different administrations. Mm. Uh, and, and of course, here in Michigan, we also saw another U.S. Supreme Court a decision in June of 2020 with regard to uh, transgender 
uh, writes, uh, Amy Stevens, uh, who, who we were really fortunate to have uh, as a guest here on Detroit Today before that case, uh, th- that ruling is, is a major step forward as well, Jay. Absolutely. The first time the Supreme Court actually addressed a transgender civil rights case and said that when you discriminate against somebody in employment based on transgender status, that's a form of sex discrimination. Mm-hmm. You're treating someone differently based on the gender that was assigned to them at birth. And yes, and what we're, what we're hoping and from the Michigan Supreme Court is that they will apply the rationale in the Bostock decision to other contexts of discrimination. So not just employment, but also housing and education and public accommodations, including access to health care. Okay, uh, Paul M. Smith, professor from practice at Georgetown Law and vice president for litigation and strategy at the Campaign Legal Center. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, I've enjoyed it. And Jay Kaplan, LGBT rights project staff attorney at the ACLU of Michigan. It is always really great to have you with us here on Detroit Today, but it was especially great for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephen. And as always, remember that you can be a part of the WDET Book Club really easily. Uh, just go to wdet.org slash constitution or go to the WDET Book Club Facebook page uh, where we are constantly having uh, discussions about the U.S. Constitution and the role it plays in equality and inequality here in our lives. And remember that uh, we are sending out pocket-sized constitutions and postcards where we welcome your voice, the things that you think maybe could be different about the U.S. Constitution. You can also find that at WDET.org slash Constitution. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when a neuroscientist joins me for a conversation about a term you may not yet have heard inherited trauma. We're going to get the details on what it is and why it matters in the context of this current moment in America. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.